Good morning. Can you hear me? Is that good? That was a really beautiful song, and uh, the name of it is Glorious Ruins. That is the testimony. That is a song to my testimony for sure. Um, I definitely feel blessed to be here this morning and honored to stand before you and share my story. Um, There's definitely a God story, and um, I just want to let you know that I'm really, really blessed to be here. So um, for me, the story starts um, when I was 18, 19 years old. I was, um, can you see me? I feel like you can't see me. I'm going to do this. Is that better? I'm short. So I feel like you can only see like my nose, but okay. Um, So for me, like I said, I was 18, 19 years old. I was um, coming out of high school. I went to a vocational high school, so I'm from the North Shore area. Okay, Revere, Saugus, Peabody, I don't know. Okay. Um, So I went to the Vogue in Wakefield. No, okay. (laughs) So I was going for cosmetology, so I wanted to be a hairdresser. Um, For some reason, uh, at the age of 14, I was like, you know what, I don't want to go to regular high school. I want to go to vocational high school so I can do something with my life. Um, My parents really weren't guiding me, giving me any wisdom or direction in my life. They um, were married, but very unhealthy, very dysfunctional. I had a mom that suffered from severe depression, bipolar. Um, I was pretty much on my own from a young age. Um, My dad worked a lot, so he was never there. And I had an older brother. He was 10 years older than me, and he could care less, you know, because he was 10 years older and was living his own life. So, like I said, I really had no direction, but at 14 I had this some kind of wisdom, and I went to vocational high school. So 18, 19 years old, I have just graduated, cosmetology license, and a high school diploma. And um, I was working in a small hair salon in Revere, um, not far from the beach. And as I'm there, I'm kind of partying, drinking, hanging out with older people. Kind of had been doing that since I was 12, 13, 14 anyways. I was always um, attracted to drugs and drinking, Um, doing lots of pills, and just kind of hanging out with that kind of crowd of people. So 18, 19, those are the people I'm hanging out with. And by this point, I'm going to clubs um, that are 21 plus, and I had a fake ID, and I was drinking. Um, And I had met a man there, and he was only a year or two older than me, so it didn't seem like a big deal. But there was something about him that was different from the other guys that I had previously dated, because he had money, and he had lots of charm, and lots of charisma, and he was really hot, and so that added to it, and he would just, at the time I met him, show me lots of attention, like I said, it was coming from a broken place, so any attention from men especially really filled that deep void that was inside of me, I didn't know I had a deep void, I didn't know I was filling this God-shaped hole with other things, but that's essentially, as I look back, what I was doing. And that's exactly what he was feeling for me, is that attention and love and acceptance that I had been searching for. I was finding that in man. And as he told me how much he loved me and how pretty I was and how much you know, I could ride off into the sunset with him and we would have a happy life together, we began dating three, four, five months or so. And um, those are the things that he was telling me. And I was starting to trust him and I was believing in him. I had no reason not to. He um, had a small registry business where he would work for car dealerships and 
um, make registry runs when people would buy a new car. So he had a small business. He had a Mercedes-Benz. He had his um, own place and just lots of money all the time. And this was exciting. It was fast. It was intriguing. And over the time, he starts to persuade me in a way to um, make me quit my job at the hair salon because he was telling me I could make way more money if I worked in a massage parlor and if I would just turn tricks and if I would basically be his bottom. They call it in the life when there's a pimp and he has his first girl, you're considered the bottom excuse my language, bottom bitch, okay? So that's what it's considered when you're in the life. And that's what he was promising me. He was promising me I would be number one. He was promising me that would be um, my role and that he would love me and that we would make lots of money and everything was going to be okay. So as this slow coercion process was happening, he pulled me out of the hair salon. He'd say, you don't have to work there anymore. You're going to make much more money um, doing doing this, going to the massage parlor and working. And I was also going to a community college in Lynn, North Shore Community for Journalism. And he talked me out of that. He said, you don't need to go to college. Go to college later for business, and you can have your own hair salon. What do you want to be a journalist for? What do you want to write for? And so all this process of this manipulation, this grooming process, got me to the place where he finally had me driving down to Connecticut to a massage parlor um, in Hartford, Connecticut. And um, I had a friend that actually was working there as well. But I didn't know it at the time that she had already been trapped in the life. We were friends in high school. And for a year or two, she had kind of fell off the face of the earth. I didn't know where she had gone. And don't you know, my man actually knew her pimp. And he brought me to her house. And once I went to her house, that kind of sealed the deal for me. That kind of, I was already on the edge. I wasn't really sure if I wanted to live this life and do this. But when I saw how she was living, I thought, okay, maybe this isn't going to be so bad. Because she was living in Chestnut Hill. She had Range Rover, BMW, big house, lots of clothes, jewelry. um, Seemed to have it all together. And I was really enticed. Um, 19 years old, thought I knew it all, had all the answers. And money and materialistic things were the answer. And she told me, it's not that bad. That She taught me what to do. She said, you just go into the room. You negotiate with the guy. And you, you, know, you use condoms. And this is how you do it. And you make fast money. And it's not that bad. So I was still on the fence. I was tormented by the fact that I was falling in love with this guy. He was selling me this fake dream in reality. He was selling me a lot of dreams. In reality, they were fake. On the other side, conflicted by having to sell my body for a profit. That really didn't sound like how I want to live my life. But I went to Connecticut, and I'll never forget the first time we drove down there. It's um, you know, about an hour, 45 minutes, two hours from Boston. And we get there, and I show up with a duffel bag full of um, high heels, skimpy dresses, condoms, baby wipes, and I'm set to work from 10 in the morning till 1 a.m. And so the days were really long. And because you were far from Boston, we would stay there for three to four days in a row. So um, I would work from 10 to 1, and then I would stay at a local hotel and then go back to work the next day. Did this for a few days in a row. And my first, first experience was pretty horrific. Um, 
I can't explain to you how damaging the act of prostitution is to your soul and how the trauma of it just really and the shame of it really just numbs you from the first time. Um, I had to do a date or turn a trick, however you want to call it, um, with this man. So the act of it was very damaging, but the, the result of having fast money was very intriguing. And so that's where it gets messed up. And that's where you're like, well, that was really bad, and I really don't like doing that. But wow, I just made $100 in 25 minutes. Now, at the hair salon, I was working eight hours, maybe making $80 in tips. You know, and I was standing on my feet all day and busting my butt, and it was really difficult. And I just made $100 in 25 minutes. So that fast money was, a, was you became addicting pretty quickly. Um, the first time I had to hand him all the money that I had made, was another part of my story that I remember as clear as day. So I had worked those few days in a row. We come back from Connecticut to Boston. We were living in Cambridge at the time. And we get out of the car. <clears throat> I had a pocket full of money. And it was time to hand it over to him. Um, and he pulls out his hand. And, he sa- and I'm hesitating. And he says, is there going to be a problem with this? And in my mind, I said, oh, yeah, there's going to be a problem with this. But I still handed over the money because I didn't have the ability or the voice or the guts or, or whatever it was. I was so filled with shame, fear, anxiety that I couldn't say no, and I handed over the money. And that was another turning point where I lost the voice. There goes the voice, my choices, options. Um, I really need you to understand that the process of this isn't a choice. You know, I didn't grow up as a young girl saying, oh, I want to be a prostitute for my life when I grow up. No. I grew up having some kind of dreams and goals and ambitions in life, but some man came into my life and told me lots of lies and sold me a lot of fake promises and mixed with insecurities, low self-esteem, low self-worth. I was really able to be coerced into believing that this way of life was going to do something for me. And these little points is how I really got trapped into the life. Um, So I need you to understand that because... Prostitution, human trafficking has this, I think, negative connotation where we look at them as dirty. When we say the word prostitution, we think dirty. When we think of the word human trafficking, we think of children in Thailand and China that are being trafficked here. Yes, while that's part of it, while that's happening, prostitution is still a part of trafficking. And these women are not making choices to be in the life. Something's broken. Something's wrong. So I want to help you to understand that it's about judgment, not love. But we'll get to that at the end. So from that point in Connecticut, um, I worked there for about six months. And it's really grimy and really hard. Um, I know a lot of you may know about the streets. A lot of women um, get sent on the track, they call it, or the street combat zone in Boston. Um, Well, a lot of prostitution has gone indoors. And that's another reason why it's hard to identify women and get them out of the life because it's really hidden. So they're either going in massage parlors or hotels. And that's where I was, hidden in that massage parlor in Hartford, Connecticut. It was very dark. It was in a brick building. You would never have noticed it, right downtown Hartford, Connecticut. Um, And there was a woman that was there that ran the place. Had been open for 20 years or so. A handful of women from all over the place worked there. And we would be in a lounge, and it was um, kind of stinky, like 
like um, smelly and grimy and uh, like moist, you know what I mean? Just like nasty in the air. And we would sit on these little leather couches um, dressed up with skimpy dresses and high heels and the men would come in, pay a fee at the door and then look around the lounge and hand a ticket to whoever he chose. And that's how you got chosen for the hour or half an hour. And like I said, you go back into the back, you negotiate, you handle your business, and you're done. And you just do this all day long. And there's also a quota to make. So I had a specific amount of money I had to make, and I knew it. So if I wasn't making that amount, I would you know, have to hustle more. I'd have to somehow get myself picked more so I'd make more money um, because I knew... That was just known. There was just an underlying tone of fear. You know, he hadn't put his hands on me at that point, and I wasn't still realizing at this point he wasn't my boyfriend anymore. You know, this man is now turning into my pimp, and that was a really hard transition to make, too. I think I was in denial about that for a long time because I wanted to hold on to the fact that he loved me and he was my boyfriend. Everything he said was true and that we were just doing this for a little time, and sure enough, I'd be able to retire. But that wouldn't happen for a long time later. And the beatings start when I start to speak up. When I start to say, no, I changed my mind. I can't go to Connecticut anymore. I can't do this. It's too hard. I don't want to do this. That's when the beatings, severe, severe beatings. And I'm going to totally spare you the gory details of what it's like to get your hands, to get someone's hands put on you almost on a daily basis. Um, there was always a gun present in the house or on him. So it was always in constant fear. Um, the, the, the way he would speak to me, the manipulation, the brainwashing, he would say, you're no good, you're dirty, um, no one's ever going to love or want a prostitute anyway, how are you ever going to make money ever again in your life like this, you're never going to be able to function anyway. Um, he would just feed me all these lies, and I believed him. On top of the beatings, the self-esteem was just going down going down lower and lower. Never mind the fact of what I'm actually doing with my body. So from Maine, I mean, from Connecticut, I was sent to Maine. And in Maine, um, it's a little more higher priced. It's, it was in Kittery, Maine, and it wasn't so dark and dirty. There was bigger windows, and it overlooked some kind of river. And the prices were higher, and it seemed that the quality of men and women were cleaner or maybe not so drug addicted. I don't know what the case was, but it just seemed better. And I was there for about two years, and we finally moved into another apartment, and we got more bedrooms, so we were living in a three, four-bedroom apartment in Everett, Mass., and that's when the other girls started coming. So now at this point, I wasn't making enough money, so he said, so we had to find more girls to work for us. And so he would recruit them, and then I was told I had to teach them what to do. So now I was teaching them the roles, the rules, and how to act and behave and how to make money and take them to work with me, or they would go to Connecticut. So that was also another part of the trauma and the abuse. Um, when the other women started coming, I was again realizing that this is not what I signed up for. This is not what I want to do. I need to get out of here. And I started running away. Where would I run to? My parents' house. He knew where that was. So he would just come. I'd come outside. He, in the car, he would start badgering me, beating me, manipulating me into believing that nothing was ever going to change. I had to stay with him. I don't know if you've ever been in an abusive relationship or the power control. You know, obviously he's the abuser. 
obviously I was the weaker one and he was just totally taking advantage of that. And every time I went back, because I believed I had no worth and nothing was ever going to change anyway, and I just kept going back. Plus the shame of what you're doing with your body keeps you in an intense amount of bondage. Uh, I thought I was completely broken, not redeemable, dirty. I I was going to die that way. That's how it felt. He was going to kill me on top of it if, you know... So I was just kept going back. And then there were other times when I would run out of our apartment. Um, he would sit me down for long arguments, and he would sit me down on the couch and just start yelling at me and belittling me. And when he would look away or turn away to do something, I would try to run out of the house. And one time I ran out um, to the corner store barefoot with no money, no cell phone, anything. And I ran to the corner store to hide behind a stack of newspapers while he drives by looking for me. And as I'm hiding there, I realize, great, now where am I going to go? I have no money, no shoes on, no one to call. I'd walk right back to the house, and the cycle just continues. So am am I making clear why women get trapped in these situations? I think that's a big part of the problem of human trafficking prostitution is that no one understands, well, why doesn't she just leave? Well, because it's not that easy. So I really want to make sure that I'm clear of why you understand I stayed for so long. So um, that began after that he put me through college. He knew I was smart, and he knew I was probably going to stick around for a while. He put me to a community college, Bunker Hill, and I got my business degree and two years, and he told me that I was going to run a business, and that would be the front for all the money that we were making. As I graduated college, I just went through the line, got my diploma, and I literally had no sense of accomplishment, had no sense of anything. I mean, I really got the dean's list. I couldn't believe the abilities that I had that were inside of me that weren't being accessed because obviously I was so oppressed. But as I graduated, I felt no sense of anything, no sense of achievement got the diploma and whatever, and just went on in my life. But that served me well later, but at that point, um, it it wasn't working for me. So that also helped me gain some self-worth, because I'm realizing, okay, I am achieving something here. I am doing something. Then I started working out, and I started going to the gym all the time, and I don't know what got me into this, but I was um, in the gym, and there was a boxing ring in the back, and I saw heavy bags, and I obviously had a huge desire to punch something, so I just found my way into there, and I started punching on a heavy bag, and I probably had severe aggression, and this trainer caught wind of me. He was an old-school trainer, like missing teeth from Mexico. I mean, he was awesome, and um, he was like, whoa, you know, hey. So he started training me to box, and I mean training me, like he was training me to f- compete. I was ready. Um, but he didn't know what really was going on in my life, but I was doing it as a way to build some self-esteem, defend myself, whatever it was that I was doing I didn't even realize. And then when I came with black eyes, he said, okay, girl, I'm going to teach you how to bob and weave, and you're never going to have a black eye again. And it was true. He taught me how to bob and weave through the ring, and I, I never did have a black eye again. Instead, I started becoming the aggressor. So every time he would attack me, um, he would often attack me with objects, whether they were belts or um, guns um, 
or whatever, hangers, whatever they were, I, I would start fighting back and I would get the object. I, I was getting stronger. This is all part of the process for me. And it came to this point, as I'm getting stronger, the place I was working in Maine got busted. So by the grace of God, I was not there the day it got busted. And uh, a lot of the girls that were there, unfortunately, um, got in trouble, and publicly in trouble as well. It was a really big bust because that place had been open again for 25 years as well. So I started working online. So he started putting ads of me on Craigslist, and I started working in hotels all around Boston area, North Shore, South Shore, um, in calls, out calls to people's houses and to the hotels. And I was doing this. He wasn't coming with me all the time. He would just drop me off at the hotel, and I would have to work there for long hours or stay over and work the, the next morning. But by this point, he had trusted me. He had other girls working for him, so he wasn't so you know, paying attention to everything I was doing. So I was able to save money. And at this point, I was like, I'm going to save some money, and I'm going to get out of here. And I also became pregnant. And I knew that the pregnancy was from him, and I knew that this baby, well, I thought that this baby was going to save my life, and this would definitely be a chance that he's going to make me stop work. He's going to let me stop working because he had promised me a family. He's not going to make me work while I'm pregnant, and I'm definitely going to retire. It had been five years. It had been five years at this point. I definitely thought it was time. And I was excited about the pregnancy, and I was really hopeful, but unfortunately... He vehemently did not want me to have the baby, and he forced me to have an abortion. So if I didn't go to that abortion clinic, he was going to make sure I had an abortion. So again, the choice of what's happening with my body and my life was out of my hands, out of my control. Um, but because of that abortion... It really gave me the determination to leave. And I was working on my own, like I had said, in, in the hotels. And I started saving money in plastic bags. I'd put them in Ziploc bags and dig holes in my potted plants, and I hid the money in there. And I did that for six months because I knew that's how he wouldn't find it. And I did that. I found myself an apartment in the area, so I didn't go far. We lived in Everett, and I found an apartment in Everett. But at least I found myself a place. And I had called the police. The police kind of knew us, because they were there often, from times before. And I had called the police, and they were my escort as I packed up my bags. So, like I said, been there five years. I've made thousands upon thousands of dollars. And I'm packing maybe some clothes and shoes in trash bags. That was my luggage. And I'm leaving, and as I'm walking by him on the porch, and the police officer is there, he says, I'm so happy we didn't have that baby, because you're worthless anyway. And I don't know, he said some really mean comments as I walked by him. It was about the baby. And I just kept moving forward, and I got in my car, and I left, and I went to my apartment. So I move in with the bare minimal nothing, really. And at this point, I was not doing drugs. I was completely sober. Um, and I get the apartment, and I'm just sitting there in the living room, 
crying and wanting to end my life, literally end my life. But I didn't have any means. I didn't know, you know, what was it, Advil? Was it, will that kill me? I mean, what did I have? Nothing. I had nothing. I'm not, I'm too chicken to like cut myself or anything, so I, Advil, but no. So I have stomachache, not dead. Call my mother, crying. I didn't have the guts to tell her, your only daughter has been a prostitute for five years. I've been being pimped out. So what I told her was, yeah, he made me dance, and I gave him money, and this kind of stuff. And she knew he was kind of abusive. I really didn't know what was going on because I said of the dysfunction of my family anyway, kind of put your head in the sand kind of parents. But she heard there was obviously something wrong, and she came, and she kind of helped me buy some items for the home, and that was about it. And I just tried to go on. But unfortunately, relapse is part of the process. You know, I happened to call him, and I didn't tell him exactly where I lived, but I reached out to him. He ended up finding where I lived, and he busted his way in. It was glass doors, and he busted his way in, and after a large, intense altercation, physical altercation and violence, I had the courage to call 911, and the police came and arrested him for the night on domestic violence charges. And because of those charges, I was able to go to the court next day and obtain a restraining order. And I did. I, restrain, I got the restraining order and I kept it. I meant it. Um, I went back the two weeks later to make sure it got extended for the year. And he did not show up at court to contest against that. So I got it. So while this was great, while I got the order and he really stayed away, here I am, completely traumatized, in a world that I haven't been in for five years, all alone, and trying to make it in this world. I started hanging out with different friends, and sure enough, they're abusing Oxycontin. So maybe some of you know Oxycontin, huge, popular um, pain medication that's widely um, abused and very addictive. So I started dibbling and dabbling in that, and of course I'm drinking again, I'm partying, it's full on by this point because of the emotional and intense pain that I'm going through. I tried to get myself a square job. I went and applied and I got some nine to five secretary job that I could not do. I mean, I was just falling asleep. I mean, I was totally just traumatized. If you can picture like uh, someone with just nerve, all nerve endings, I mean, that was me. I like anything, I was very PTSD serious trauma and just putting me into the nine to five world was not functioning, was not working well. And so that didn't last. I started going to therapy for victims of violence and she's trying to help me. I don't know if she was really identifying me as a survivor of this or um, I wasn't really telling her all the details, but she was trying to help and I told her I was abusing Oxycontin and she said, that's not a good idea. I said, but it's working and I'm going to continue to get high. She tried to talk me out of it, um, but it just went on from there. So from the Oxycontin led to um, a full-fledged heroin addiction, losing the apartment, going back into the work of prostitution to support myself and my drug habit, and living on the streets actually in Charlestown on a park bench. So <laughs> from trauma to trauma to more trauma to more trauma, and because of the drug addiction, it led me in jail, like I said, homeless, parents totally not talking to me, totally just 
shutting me out of their lives. Um, a guy that I had run, been running with on the streets had gotten arrested. And at this point, it was pretty ugly, pretty bad. And I went to see him in jail. I don't know if he was in South Bay or Nashua Street. But I go to visit him, and I'm high, and he's in jail. And he says, Jazz, I don't really know if this is working for you. He's like, what are you going to do? Are you going to go get clean, or are you going to stay out on the streets? Because I'm going to be in here for a while. And he said that, and I was like, yeah, I thought about it. What am I going to do? Choose life or death. You know, and... I started to try to choose life, and that got me into lots of detoxes and programs. It took me a long time, but I finally figured it out, and I got sober in 2007. Uh, I've been sober since. And, um, <laughs> yeah, now I'm thinking it's 2014. That is pretty cool. Um, so because of the sobriety and getting myself involved in AA and 12-step meetings, I started seeking God, and I started wondering, I'm really broken, I'm really damaged, someone has to fix me, someone definitely has to save me from myself, because I cannot do this on my own. So I started seeking God, and surely enough, um, this woman came into my life, and she brought me to a small church, and I had no idea about God um, at all. And I come into the sanctuary. It was like a small Pentecostal church. And I just felt the presence of God. Somehow I didn't know what that really was, but I just felt loved and accepted. And, wow, this is really cool. Maybe I can do this. And so I started this journey, this faith journey. And I was so broken. And she says, she didn't know where I was really coming from. She just knew about the drug history. She didn't have any idea about what had really gone on. But she obviously sensed a deep brokenness. And she said, in the back seat of her car, she was driving me home to a train station after church. And she's, I'm in the back seat, and there's some other ladies in the car. And she says, honey, would you like to know Jesus? And I was like, yes, who is he? Yes, I want to know him. Can he fix me? And she's like, yes, he can fix you. He can heal you. You know, she's just started to love on me and hug me, and I'm crying my eyes out. And she just held me in that car and uh, said the salvation prayer and, I was on my way to walking with the Lord, and from there I started attending another small non-denominational Christian church, and I faithfully attended there. I started getting community around me of people that were also in recovery, and some that hadn't been, but had been walking with the Lord for a long time, and they just started loving on me. Uh, women, really good, healthy women, just loved me and accepted me right where I was at for who I was, didn't want anything from me which was quite a stretch from where I was coming from. And I started hearing the new message that I'm a new creation, and that everything is washed clean and your sins are forgiven and the old is gone and the new has come. And these messages started replacing the old negative messages that I heard about myself for all those years and that I believed about myself. And that started this inner transformation. And I was excited. And I finally had gained some self-worth. I started hearing, you know how God sees me and how, how I'm loved and I'm a daughter of the Most High. and I couldn't believe that this God that was so big could actually love me so little and dirty, everything I had gone through. And I just started walking that out. And over the time, um, I was almost six months sober. Um, I got back into a relationship with you know an old boyfriend that I had while... I was out there using, um, and of course I had just 
found Christ, and I think everyone should know Christ, and so I'm running around telling everyone, you need to be saved, you need to know him, he's so great, and everyone's like, "Uh, no, not really, you know, I don't want to know this Jesus guy you're talking about, and so that relationship didn't work out between him and I, but um, I got pregnant, so I had my first son, my first child, at a year sober, and um, once I had a child, I knew I could definitely never go back to the life that I used to live. Um, I was responsible for this little life, and it was so important. So I started to just, again, walk more into what God was saying about me. I started being healed of deep, deep shame um, by praying personally and then in community with other believers, attending classes at my church. Um, and the Lord really, really lifted a heavy burden of shame off of me. Um, and then as time, more time goes on, I had another daughter. I got married. I had another, I have a daughter. She's two. And um, here I am working for Amira and working with women that are coming out of the life. And I work to support them as a living hope of that, yes, what you've been through is horrendous and horrible, but there is hope. There is light at the end of the tunnel. And if you just stay walking on the path of freedom, there's lots of redemption and healing. And that's the role that I play at Amira. But I'm more than excited to talk to you guys about that after the question and answer. You can ask me all types of questions on Amira. Um, but I just want to end with this note. I got a verse that came to me as I was preparing for this. And my story is really linked with shame. And this was really powerful to me. So it's like, you know, shame tells us to hide, but Christ calls us to walk in the light with each other, right? So I'm reminded in 1 John 1, 7, 9. But if we are living in the light, as is God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all of our wickedness. And I have tremendous peace when I rest in the fact that Jesus has said, have trouble, you will have trouble in this world. And my walk with the Lord has not been easy, and if I, I've had some serious trouble, but I rest in the fact that he has overcome it, and I am just so excited to share that honor and glory with you guys. So thank you. So Jasmine will, um, will be available for questions and talk about Amira. Thank you for sharing your story with us, and thank you for blessing us today. Uh, there is a song that we're going to sing called Break Every Chain. And if you hear her life, you realize that God can break any chain of bondage you may find yourself in. I know it's 11.15. I know a lot of you are ready to go and uh, want to move on to other things. So this is what we'll do. Naira and the group will sing, us, sing for us today. They'll lead us in this song. If you want to stay in worship and give testimony to the beautiful story, the beautiful testimony of Jasmine's life, and just thank God that we do serve a God that breaks every chain. Or maybe you just need to pray. Maybe you'd like to pray with Jasmine. We'll be here for that. So will you please stand? Let us worship together. And then if you need to go, please know you are dismissed, and you go at this time. Jesus, there is power in the name.
of Jesus. There is power in the name of Jesus to break every chain, break every chain, break every chain. To break every chain, break every chain, break every chain. There is power in the name of Jesus. There is power in the name of Jesus. There is power in the name of Jesus. To break every chain, break every chain. Break every chain to break every chain, break every chain, break every chain. There's an army rising up. There's an army rising up. There's an army. To break every chain, break every chain. To break every chain, break every chain, break every chain. There's an army, there's an army rising up. There's an army rising up. There's an army.
Amen. Glory to God. And serve others. You are dismissed.